The next episode will be useful advice from social science about what you can and should be doing during the coronavirus pandemic. And it will come out early over at Patreon, but it will be free. This is a one-person operation, by the way. So if you want to support the podcast, you can do that over at patreon.com slash you are not so smart. But to get the next episode, you don't have to spend any money. It's just going to come out there early and then come out here at the usual time. Just in case things get drastically different between now and then, and just so you can have it now to listen to during this moment that we're all going through and they're all going to get through. Wash your hands, stay at home, listen to the advice of medical and scientific experts, and after, please invite me over. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 176. Oh, this is part two of a two-part series about how a divisive photograph of a perceptually ambiguous dress led two researchers to build the nuclear bomb of cognitive science out of socks and Crocs. Mm. I love that sentence. I love it. To understand any of what I'm about to tell you, you need to be refreshed on the story and the science that we've covered so far. So let's quickly go back through all of that stuff. But also, as we do that, let's cover some new stuff. Okay, here we go. In 2015, a photograph of a dress hit the internet and it went mega, 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 mega viral because some people saw it as one color, others saw it as another color, and no amount of arguing between these groups could get people who saw it differently to get the other people to see it their way. When neuroscientist Pascal Wallach, an expert on color vision and sleep and differences in perception, first saw this dress, he had the same experience as everyone else. He saw it as gold and white, but his wife saw it as black and blue, and this made him go, uh, this can't be, because despite his expertise, he had no idea why this would be true. And so he, along with many other researchers around the world, began to investigate it, and in his field, as he put it, it was like a biologist discovering a new organ in the human body that had somehow eluded science up until now. He became obsessed, and he shifted his research focus at NYU to tackle the problem while the dress was still going around the internet, causing people to argue and more or less freak out. After two years and thousands of subjects, he succeeded in figuring out why. Or, to put it more scientifically, he and his team succeeded in forming a robust hypothesis that was supported by the evidence they had collected so far.
That hypothesis was this. If you've been a morning person most of your life, the dress is more likely to appear white and gold to you in your mind's eye, in your brain, in your subjective experience, in the virtual reality created by the neurons that are all enmeshed, entangled, and networked inside your skull. If you've been an evening person most of your life, the dress is more likely to appear blue and black for the same reasons. And that's all because the brain constructs reality. What you see and feel and taste and hear is an interpretation, and the way it appears in consciousness is a representation of that interpretation. The brain is trapped in the black box of the skull, and the information coming in from the senses is, to the brain, nothing but frequencies of cellular activity, neuronal thresholds of activation, biochemical signals, code. You are code. Everything you taste, feel, hear, and do code decoded into a virtual reality now that's enough for anyone to stop what they're doing go out and stare into the distance for a while and reassess everything about everything you know but there's another level to this that complicates it even further that makes it even weirder there are aspects of subjective reality like the third dimension that the brain doesn't receive from the senses at all. Instead, it uses the limited information it does receive to extrapolate and assume and guess its way to making a maybe, maybe not good enough version of three-dimensional reality that exists only inside of minds. You, you don't have uh, distance information available, okay? Distance. Your, your brain does not have distance information available at all. That's NYU neuroscientist, cognitive scientist, and psychologist, Pascal Walsh. Uh, why not? Because, uh, uh, David, how many dimensions does your retina have? Uh, for the sake of this, two. Wonderful. The retina is, for the sake of this, a two-dimensional sheet at the back of your eye, and the uh, world is projected onto it. Okay, great. Now, as far as we know, how many dimensions does reality have? As far, it, as, far as we experience it, three, kind of four, but let's say visually three. Three plus. Let's say stick with three. Oh no, David. An entire dimension of information is lost up front. It never enters your brain. Oh no. Three to two, right? Let me ask you this. David, do you do you think this distance is kind of important to like survive in the environment? Yeah, it's vital. It's, it's incredibly vital. I have kind of bad news for you, David. Your brain doesn't have no information about this at all. Distance. You, there's substantial uncertainty. So what I mean by that is, so for instance, Minor uncertainty would be like, oh, I don't know if this shirt is a blue or turquoise or cyan or bloy or whatever, some 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 shade of blue, right? Substantial mm -hmm. uncertainty is like, oh my god, I have no idea how far away something is. Yes, mm -hmm. right. Let, let me tell you how this resolved in 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 real life. In real life, over a lifetime, you learn what is associated with distance. So for instance, you learn that things that are farther away look bluer because of uh, you know, Rayleigh scattering of light in the atmosphere. You realize that things that are far away are higher up. You realize that things that are far away move less uh, as you move. It's called parallax and things like that. And so over a lifetime, you build up a database of correlations that allows you to disambiguate this, this, uh, this substantial uncertainty. Substantial uncertainty. We're going to return to this quite a bit for the rest of the episode, but we're not going to dig into it quite yet, except to say you are not so smart as an idea, as a thing 
its sort of mission statement is you are unaware of how unaware you are, and because of that, you are the unreliable narrator in the story of your life. I say those two things all the time. That is what this whole show, this whole project is about. When Pascal and his colleague, Michael Karlovich, who you will meet in a moment, when they talk about this, they talk about it in terms of substantial uncertainty, but it's understood that when you are substantially uncertain, sometimes you don't know it. And sometimes not only do you not know it, your brain will resolve that uncertainty and not tell you about it. And so the result is that you can feel quite certain that you understand something or you experience something and that it's real and true and proper, even though it's just a guess. You aren't privy to the fact that your brain is guessing. And that's how distance works in art, in video games, in movies. As Pascal just said, we don't receive distance information via our senses. We assume it based on associations that we have correlated with distance in the past. A few episodes back, we had an entire episode about this with cognitive scientist Maura Dillon, who also is at NYU. And she said, all works of art are optical illusions, representing not what's out there, but what happens inside your brain when you interact with what's out there. Real world to artist's retina, artist's retina to representation, representation to canvas, canvas to audience retina, audience retina to audience representation. 3D to 2D to 3D to 2D to 3D. Images, whether they're paintings or photographs or works of art of any kind from video games to comic books. They exhibit some of the features the brain associates with the reality that it creates when it's trying to give you information about distance. Some of the regularities with which the brain is familiar. The brain can interpret the lines on the paper, the paint on the canvas, the pixels on the screen as if those are clues about distance information. And so it takes that and generates the illusion of distance where there is none. With most art and video games and movies, our broadly similar brains decode those lines in paint and pixels into subjective realities that are broadly similar. When you see Elsa from Frozen on your iPad, you don't interpret those pixels as a pile of ketchup packets singing in unison. You interpret them as one thing, the same thing as everyone else. But there are other images. Images called bistable perceptions that the brain decodes into one of two possible subjective experiences. And since it can't decide which one is the right one, the most useful one, the most accurate one, it switches back and forth, seemingly at random. Like with the Rubens vase, which can look like a vase or like two people facing one another. Or the Necker cube, which we mentioned earlier, which sometimes looks inside out and sometimes looks outside in. And, my favorite, the duck rabbit, which looks like a duck and looks like a rabbit. But the duck rabbit is neither a duck nor a rabbit. It's just lines on a piece of paper, which is to say it's electromagnetic, which is to say it's electromagnetic energy bouncing off the paper, entering the eye through the pupil, striking the retina, where it gets translated into the buzz of neurons. And normally, the brain would decode that buzz into one thing. But in the case of these bistable images, the buzz is ambiguous. 
Not wildly so, like an abstract painting, which would be sort of broadly stable, like maybe people see one of 16 or 17 common things. No, these images are bistable. It looks like a duck, or it looks like a rabbit, but not both at the same time. The brain is unable to settle on one or the other as it tries to turn that ambiguous buzz into a virtual object for you to perceive inside of your personal, subjective reality. So, that brings us back to the dress. As Scientific American put it, the dress turned out to be a new category of visual illusion. Unlike a rabbit that can look like a duck, if you saw one of the two possible ways of interpreting the dress and not the other, there was no way that someone who did see it differently could help you see it in the other way. Pascal and his team had a hunch that this had to do with what happens when the brain faces substantial uncertainty. When the brain must disambiguate an ambiguous image, it does so using its priors. Priors are what neuroscientists and philosophers call the years of experience and regularity leading up to the present. All the ways that a ball has bounced, all the ways a pancake has tasted, all the ways the dogs in your life have barked or bitten or hugged you when you were sad. These all shape the brain, literally shape it. They form and prune our neural networks so that in situations that are uncertain, unfamiliar, or ambiguous, we depend on these priors to help us disambiguate the new information coming into the brain via our senses. But the brain goes further than this. In situations of what Pascal and Michael call substantial uncertainty, the brain will use its priors to create illusions of what ought to be there. In the last episode, we used this example, which you can see at the website, of a bowl of strawberries created by psychologist Akiyoshi Kiraoka. In that image, there are no red pixels. But when you see it, you will see the strawberries as red. This is called color constancy. And it happens because you've grown up eating strawberries and spent a lifetime seeing strawberries as red. So your strawberry priors are activated in that moment of uncertainty when you see the familiar shape of a strawberry without enough color information. Your brain assumes they should be red, even if the wavelength of light that the brain interprets as red is not present. The red is a complete fabrication by your brain, which is, in a way, a lie told to you by your visual system in an effort to provide you with what ought to be the truth. That lie, like with distance, is more useful to your survival than the truth of the image would be. And so that's what appears in your conscious awareness. I was recently talking to an AI guy, artificial intelligence, and they were like, we can't figure out why our models don't work. We, we, we fed our artificial vision system with, with a billion images, two billion images, five billion images, right? But the performance is very poor. And so here's what's, what, what shocked me talking to this guy. So he's like, we can't figure this out. I was like, bro, the information is not in the image to, to disambiguate. It's coming from you. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's not enough information in the images to dis distinguish them. Most of the information that, that allows you to do that comes from yourself. So unless you model that, the AI is not going to get there. Most of the information that allows you to see things does not come from the environment. It comes from yourself, which is crazy. Of course, the yourself is often like a condensed version of everything you've seen up to, up to this point. In other words, your prior. After two years and a few thousand subjects, this is what Pascal found. The photo of the dress 
is missing a lot of color information, which makes it a rare, perfectly ambiguous color image. In fact, he said on the internet, maybe one in 10 billion images are like this. And we found a few others because there's so many images floating around on the internet, but not many. There's the shoe, there's the dresser, but the dress really still stands out as the one that most people remember. Because the exact wavelengths of light bouncing off the dress are difficult for people's brains to determine, each individual brain falls back on its visual priors to disambiguate the image. It's neither blue and black, nor is it white and gold. It's whatever the brain disambiguates it to be. And they found in the research that the more time subjects had spent exposed to artificial light, the more likely they interpreted the dress as black and blue because there's more blue wavelengths in that kind of light. The brains of night owls simulate the image as if it were lit artificially. The more time subjects have spent exposed to natural light, it seems more likely that they will see that dress as white and gold because the brains of early birds simulate the image in their minds as if lit by the wavelengths that are more common in sunlight. Pascal's lab came up with a term for all of this, for everything that we've talked about so far. They call it SURFPAD, which stands for Substantial Uncertainty Combined with Ramified or Forked Priors or Assumptions Yields Disagreement. And ramified, by the way, means branching. So when a situation or perception or solution is uncertain, when people don't know the right, true, proper, or best conclusion to draw, when it's ambiguous, they fall back on their priors, and different priors can lead to very different disambiguations. But no one is privy to any of this, not even the uncertainty. We don't know that we're uncertain as much as we don't know that we're disambiguating. You're only consciously aware of the results of these processes, not the processes themselves. So the resulting disagreement over reality itself makes the people who disagree with you not just seem wrong, but crazy. The dress showed that we can have an opinion about something that doesn't feel like an opinion. It feels like the raw, unfiltered, unassailable truth. Pascal Wallach and his colleague Michael Karlovich felt very good about SurfPad and its implications. They thought maybe what they had discovered concerning the dress could shed light on other kinds of polarized disagreements surrounding politics and current events. Disagreement, they realized, was the real focus of their research. And the fact that it was disagreement over something so fundamental as color meant that they could and should create an experiment that harkened back to the early days of all scientific experimentation, back when understanding color was the crack that let in the light to everything happening in the brain. But they also knew this was one very unique image, and the research into the dress might just be describing something that happened in very specific and possibly rare conditions. To truly test their hypothesis, they would have to go up a level of scientific understanding, which, as Pascal put it, meant they had to build the cognitive equivalent of a nuclear bomb. To really claim to be understanding, we have to be able to do this. Briefly, there's three or four, depends on how you count, level of science. The first level is description. Say, I describe what's out there. Just I make a catalog. Aristotle, Aristotle was big on that. Like, I make a big catalog of all the beetles and all the bugs in the world, okay? Anatomy is like that. Linnaeus. Like, I just, I'm not judging. I'm just making a big taxonomy of all the animals that live. That description, all right? But a second level to that is explanation. It's like, oh, 
I want to explain why the bugs are related to each other the way they are, or why, why these bugs look similar, why these bugs look different, right? So explanation is a second level. But the explanation is post hoc. It's like, oh, I explain things that have already happened. So what most people, most scientists then uh, require for, like, is a, is a third level, which is prediction. I predict that if we do X, Y will happen. And, and importantly, if, uh, you know, not Y happens, then not X was the case. So, so there's the two, the two, the two valid uh, modes, like modus poens, modus tollens. Like, if I understand it correctly, like if I do X, Y should happen. If Y did not happen, X should not have happened, right? Then I can predict. That's the third level. But, and this has been recognized for a long time now, is the full, full understanding is if you can just create the, create the effect. And that's what, that's what the full, the highest level is. So for instance, um, if we can go to the moon, we probably understand gravity. If we can make a nuclear reactor, we probably understand, you know, nuclear physics pretty well. In our first conversation about this, when Pascal told me about the ladder of scientific understanding, description to explanation to prediction to creation, he told me the nuclear bomb was a really good example of creation. Now he likes to use the example of the nuclear reactor, but the idea is the same. Neither one of those creations existed until we created them. And to create something like a nuclear bomb or reactor, we had to truly understand the science behind its principles. That's not to say there isn't still plenty more to learn, but what it does say is that physics in that regard has gone way past the description, explanation, and prediction levels which is not something you can always say about the cognitive sciences, especially psychology. And Pascal is very passionate about that idea. He wants psychology to go back to the beginning and design experiments more like the way physics designs experiments. And so, with the dress, that's exactly what he wanted to do. Usually, most science, particularly in social sciences, stops at description explanation and, and prediction. But this last step to intervention, to like creating the effect, like basically creating a nuclear reactor out of our understanding of the principles is not taken. As a matter of fact, like I said, I'm, I'm challenging you to tell me one case where that, what that was done, where, where we said, okay, we think we understand this phenomenon well enough that we can recreate it from scratch. There's hundreds of theories out there why the Roman Empire fell, right? Can we test any of them? No, because there's only one Roman Empire and we can't recreate it to see what would make it fall. So there's no way to, to tell. So that's, that's, that's an analogy. In this case, we, we could and we did. Like I said at the beginning, this is part two of a two-part series about how a divisive photograph of a perceptually ambiguous dress led two researchers to build the nuclear bomb of cognitive science out of socks and crocs. I really love that description, but now that you understand what we're talking about fully, you know that in other words, they created an experiment to recreate the dress from scratch to prove they understood what was happening there. And after the break you will hear all about that experiment.
Brooklyn. Brooklyn. <laughs> I just thought they needed some kind of jingle because Brooklinen is this really incredible company that sells sheets and all sorts of other stuff for your bed that are super fantastic and high-end feeling, but they don't cost so damn much. When you make your bed in the morning, there's all this research that says it starts a chain of daily successes. There's all sorts of stuff about mindfulness and routine building and all that. But what feels better than making your bed in the morning is having really great sheets to put on that bed. And with Brooklinen, you get the home of the internet's favorite sheets. Truly, the internet's favorite sheets. They were the first direct-to-consumer bedding company that make all luxury products without luxury markups. And they have more than 50,000 five-star reviews and counting. You know how hard it is to get 50,000 five-star reviews on the internet? That means it's pretty good, y'all. Brooklinen is so confident in their product that all of their bedding comes with a lifetime warranty. You get 10% off of your first order and free shipping if you use this promo code. You are not so smart listeners only. You get this at brooklinen.com. Use the code Y-A-N-S-S. You get 10% off. That's a lot off of this fantastic stuff. That's brooklinen, B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com. Promo code Y-A-N-S-S. And New Yorkers, if you're listening, you can get the internet's favorite sheets and more in real life by visiting Brooklinen's first store in Brooklyn at 127 Kent Avenue in Williamsburg. Now, obviously, go there when it is safe to go there, but do go there when it is safe to go there because I did. And in fact, here's some audio from two months ago when I went and visited the store in person. All right, show me something bizarre, something like, show me your... The Cadillac of, of, uh, of oh Brooklyn. The cat. I think personally, I think the Cadillac of Brooklyn is the super plush towel. Super absorbent, really luxurious. This towel. These towels, right? What? Here. You know, I never even thought about having luxurious towels in my life. I didn't either until I got them, and then I, all the other towels are trash. <laughs> <laughs> Brooklyn. All other towels are trash. No, that is not their tagline. Their tagline is Brooklinen. Everything you need to live your most comfortable life. And now we return to our program. My name is David McCraney. This is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. And in this episode, we are exploring the power of socks and crocs to explain why people disagree so strongly about evidence that seems subjectively on each side to have one very clear, very obvious interpretation. So we're here in my home office, right? And um, I need to be careful, but basically, like the, do you see, do you see, do you see this? That's NYU neuroscientist Pascal Wallach, and he's showing me in a sort of crawl space in the corner of his home office, the place where he and his colleague, Michael Karlovich, built the nuclear bomb of cognitive science out of socks and crocs. This is still set up in a way. There's the lamps are back there, the crocs are here. This is, this is like partially dismantled now. So it's like, but there's this crawl space, like, but we had this all, we had, we had this all blacked out. Does that make sense? What I'm seeing is a blacked out space filled with crocs of all kinds and, and tube socks and wires. It's thrilling. Because this is what science looks like, what real science looks like. It's messy and weird. So most of this is now gone, but there was this strip. Do you see this strip here of LEDs? 
So that's how we control the light. You see that? So now, and this 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 is a sheet of our conditions that we ran because we we didn't know which one's going to run uh, work. You know what I'm saying? So so this is the space. When you feel like you're onto something in science, truly onto something, something big, like Wallace and Michael did, this hypothesis they had inside the domain of psychophysics that the way that people see things differently, literally see things differently, explains why they see things differently metaphorically. When you feel like you can actually create that experiment, when you have that eureka moment that says, oh wait, I think I know how we can do this, it can lead to a rush, a mad dash, and in this case, a real mad dash to stores all over the New York area to find the very special equipment that they needed to conduct a very special and weird experiment. I stood in front of this Crocs display for about an hour just being like what colors <laughs> and you know there's you know until you go to a croc store you don't realize how many crocs there are that's neuroscientist michael karlovich and he is sending pictures of crocs to another neuroscientist pascal wallish back at the lab because they're on the verge of a breakthrough in the field of psychophysics i was just taking pictures and sending them to pascal and we were just uh, and we were going nuts there because when I would take a picture of the croc in the store, it wouldn't match the color of the croc on the screens. And it was like, so that was just one issue in itself. Like, what is the manufacturer's color? Um, so we started to realize that this is going to be interesting. They had been searching for months for an object that could stand in for the dress in an attempt to create an experiment that could replicate what people experienced back in 2015 when the infamous dress hit the Internet. What they needed was an object that was perceptually ambiguous, which meant when viewed under unusual lighting conditions, people would ignore that object and look to something else in the image to clue them in as to what the actual lighting conditions were. Based on their priors, that clue would then tell them, okay, then the ambiguous object must be lit in this way, and they would see it in that way. If their hypothesis was correct, then that should cause some people to see it as one color and others to see it as another. And for that, they either needed something that had no default color associated with it already, or a large portion of the public associated it with one color and others associated it with another. Yeah, so that's, so that's the key. Let me get this clear on camera, on mic for you. We want a situation where for part of the, pro, for part of the object, people have no prior. And part of the object, some people have a strong prior. That's it. That That's the design principle. And I think this would work with almost anything. I've tried lots of different things that could potentially be ambiguously perceived. Before we got to that, I tried things like flamingos, because flamingos are usually pink, but they can be white. Um, and I tried uh, eggs because of the story green eggs and ham. I figured I could maybe there's enough of a prior from like, if I can make eggs greenish, I make some people see them as green and some people as yellow. Um, and then I, I just tried around with different color combinations, lots of on objects and in Photoshop for hours playing around with just the nature of color and light, um, to, to no avail. Um, and then, and then I, that's when I reached out to Pascal telling him that I was 
trying to do it and he said like fat chance um and i just kind of kept at it and we kept talking about it and got to the crocs So why Crocs? Well, there are two answers to this, but the first one lies in the question itself. When I ask you, what color are Crocs? Those foam resin clogs popular with nurses and gardeners and retirees. What color comes to your mind? What do you see in your mind's eye? The first reason they chose Crocs is because there are 28 different colors of Crocs. They don't have any particular color. Think of it like this. If you saw a black and white photo of a strawberry you'd probably assume it was red. But if you saw a black and white photo of a croc, well, you wouldn't know what to assume. Reason number two. Michael had spent weeks trying to find an object that had no particular color. And he had tried all sorts of things, from green eggs to fake flamingos. Until one day, this old memory came flying back to the center of his attention. He remembered being in school studying color science, and he was helping a friend grow some plants in a grow house lit only by green-tinted grow lights. Now, green plants are green because they absorb all the wavelengths of visible light except the wavelengths that brains interpret as green. So if you use green light, the plants react as if they are in darkness. You can think of it as plants can't see green, but you can. So you can work with plants during an artificial nighttime without disturbing their circadian rhythms if you use green lights. Michael was hanging out with someone doing just that when he noticed something unusual. Michael's friend was wearing Crocs, and those Crocs were gray inside the grow house. But then they went outside, they went into the sunlight, and he saw, oh no, wait, these Crocs are pink. Yeah, they're just these, they're really, they're like a just worn, worn out, beat up pink Croc. Under the green lights, they were gray. Under sunlight, they were pink. He understood it. He was studying color science. It made sense. Then they went back into the grow house and they remained pink. They remained pink as if they were still in sunlight. And Michael knew that this was impossible. We have reached the point in our story where we have to go back over how color works scientifically if we're going to understand anything else. So let's just get right into it. Light is an oscillating electromagnetic energy field. The higher frequency oscillations have short wavelengths. The lower frequency oscillations have long wavelengths. And this energy, it emanates from some source, like a candle or the moon or the sun, and then it hits the objects around us. Those objects absorb some and the rest bounces off, and then some of that reflected light bouncing off enters our pupils, strikes the retina, and is translated into electrochemical signals that amount to the buzzing of neurons. The brain then decodes that buzzing to construct the subjective experience of color. 
Along this electromagnetic spectrum, radio waves are very, very long, and X-rays are really, really short. But we can't see those because we evolved to detect the strongest wavelengths produced by the sun, or what we would call visible light. Shorter wavelengths of visible light are experienced in the brain as the color blue, longer wavelengths as the color red, and green in the middle. And that's right, in the brain. Color only exists inside our brains. Out there, it's wavelengths, the crests and valleys of the most commonly encountered wavelengths of the oscillating electromagnetic field emanating from our closest star, to be exact. In here, in virtual reality, where you're hearing these words, it's red, green, and blue. A white object is white because it reflects all the wavelengths and absorbs none, whereas a black object does the inverse of that and absorbs all the wavelengths and reflects none. A red object, however, absorbs all the wavelengths except the long ones. And when those long wavelengths bounce off that object and then hit your retina, your brain perceives that as red. Which means, if you illuminate a red object in only green light, it will absorb almost all of that light and reflect almost none back, which means it will appear dark in your brain, almost black, what we call gray. So green and pink are on the opposite end of the color wheel. This is the, the simplest way if I can say it. And the green light cancels out the, the pink, uh, rendering it gray. Um, so you can do this uh, with you know other colors. Like if you put the if you put red, if you put, took straight red and put it under the green light, it would almost look black. Um, but the pink it cancels out into a grayish. Green light on pink Crocs, because pink is kind of a lighter shade of red, will make them look grayish. And that is exactly what was happening to those pink Crocs in that grow room under those green lights. They were absorbing almost all of that green and reflecting almost none of it back. And Michael's brain perceived them as gray. But under sunlight, which contains red light, his brain saw them as pink, their true color. But then, when he went back under the grow lights, his brain knew the truth. It had already seen them as they really were. And so they didn't go back to gray, even though nothing had actually changed in the physical world. Objective reality had not been altered, but something inside Michael's brain had, because his brain knew that the Crocs were supposed to be pink. Because of that, he saw them as pink, even though those wavelengths of light were not entering his eyes. Which means... Michael's brain was lying to him and telling him the truth at the same time. Under normal lighting conditions, these crocs would be pink, but these were not normal lighting conditions. In objective reality, the wavelengths of light that his brain would have interpreted as pink just weren't there. They were not present. And so the brain delivered to Michael's consciousness a color perception that was a complete fiction because it decided all on its own without any input from him, that they weren't pink, but they ought to be. And so, for him, they were. Somewhere in the middle of trying to both come up with an experimental design and come up with an object that would work in that design, the shoe came along. The shoe. The shoe is just like the dress, in that it works the same way as the dress, using all the principles we've talked about so far. And in the case of the shoe, some people saw it as mint green and gray, and some people saw it as pink and white, exactly as Michael had seen that croc back in the day. And when he told Pascal about that story about the croc, Eureka. And the impetus was 
the shoe, the sneaker resurfaced in like May 2019. The the sneaker had gone retroviral. There was a there was a sneaker that was uh, actually pink, but it looked to some people gray and green. And and then and then and then Fox News called me. They were like, "We want you to explain this on the air." And then I was pressed to commit to commit to a explanation. And I did on the air. I was like, "I think this is because of." What I just told you. Basically, it was the surf pad, although it didn't have the name back then yet. And there was another fortuitous development. As you know, my collaborator, Michael Kolovich, had been had told me that he had been working on, on making color ambiguous displays for months, but he couldn't do it. Yeah, and then I, I told him about that story, and he goes, huh, go buy some Crocs and socks. He got he got the Crocs, and we got the light bulbs together. And then we went and we bought it, and we yes. Lab together, right. um, a makeshift lighting lab in my in my attic. Yeah, in the bat in the uh, walk-in closet of his of his attic. And he was wearing the Crocs and socks. I was taking the pictures. Yeah, that was it. And then, um, well, and then we went through our hundreds of images. Yeah. And uh, we looked for like uh, one that was well balanced. Yeah. Like, Do you uh, were you walking through Walgreens with socks, Crocs, and grow lights? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> In a nutshell, yes. Yeah. And people look at us like we're insane. Yeah. Well, you kind of, you may be, yeah. uh, you're definitely maniacs. Uh, well, thanks. <laughs> so here's the experiment. They thought, what if we took these pink Crocs and we lit them with only green light? That would turn them gray in people's brains. That's what they would look like. Gray Crocs instead of pink Crocs. They thought if we did that and then we took a photo of these newly ambiguous gray Crocs next to some sort of illumination cue, something that would entice the brain to disambiguate them from gray into another color, just like people had done with a dress, just like people had done with a shoe, then they would be replicating this one in 10 billion image that has popped up twice so far in our most recent memories. But to do this, they would need something that was the opposite of ambiguous, something whose color was unambiguous, something discreet and concrete, something to pair with the Crocs that most people, if they were to imagine that something, would mostly imagine it as having one particular color. And here, the answer seemed obvious. Socks. Any trip to any local mall, Walmart, or Home Depot, and you will see socks paired with Crocs. And most people who pair socks with Crocs wear white socks, no matter what Crocs they pair those white socks with. So this was their grand hypothesis. Under green light, white socks will appear green. So when some brains see these green socks with gray Crocs, those brains will not believe those socks are green because socks are supposed to be white. So those brains will then, rightly so, assume that those socks are lit by green light, which means that the Crocs, although they appear gray, must actually be pink. If Michael and Pascal were correct, then all of this expertise in color theory would exist as a sort of unconscious knowledge in most people's minds, stored in their priors. And all this work would be done in the brain without anyone knowing what was happening to them. They would just experience in consciousness the end result of all of that processing. They would see pink Crocs, even though in the image, not a single pixel of those Crocs would actually be pink. If their hunches were correct, 
that also meant that some people wouldn't do any of this. They would take the photo as is. They would see the green socks, and they would assume the socks were green. Any brain that assumed that the socks were truly green would assume they were being lit by white light, which meant that the crocs were being lit by white light, which meant that the crocs were truly gray. If you take what's what's hitting your retina at face value, you will see gray crocs with green socks. However, some people will say, oh no, I know these I know these socks are white. I have these socks. I wear these socks. They're white. So now you have a hint that the light must have been green, and that was can then subtract it all around because in, in our evolution environment we have only one light source. This is not Tatooine, right? So you, you, you assume that this one light is a global light source. And if you subtract green from the entire image, including the gray, um, then you get a pink croc. By the way, just to be sure, they also got some green crocs and lit those under pink lights. But the results were the same. So what were those results? What were the results of this experiment that we've been talking about for so long? Well, you can go to the website and see for yourself, because they did it. They really did. There's an image there of a croc that some of you will see as gray and some of you will see as pink. And if you see it as gray, you can't see it as pink. And if you see it as pink, you can't see it as gray. And get this, there's a correlation here like before with the dress. It seems as though older people are more likely to see those crocs as green and younger people are more likely to see them as gray. Why? Well, it's a weak correlation, but it's there. And the idea is probably because older people are more likely to see socks as white. They've had more life experiences with white socks and fewer life experiences with socks of any other color. So there it is. Your experiences with socks over the course of your lifetime determine what you see when you take a look at an ambiguous pair of Crocs. With their understanding of the science behind the dress, Pascal and Michael were able to create an image that does exactly the same thing to large groups of people as the dress did. It creates a condition of substantial uncertainty that people resolve with their forked priors, and that then yields a bistable disagreement. In other words, they built the nuclear bomb of cognitive science, an ambiguous image so rare that before this, in the wild, it only appeared once per 10 billion photos. But now, it can be created at will. It felt so good. Uh, you know, when you have an idea and then it's working, you know, what, what else are you going to do except go after it? And that, in and of itself, would be a triumph as far as scientific methodology and experimental design are concerned. But for Pascal and Michael, this was the first step toward understanding at the fundamental level something much, much bigger. Something that affects all of us. Even right now, during the coronavirus pandemic, when I'm recording this, in moments of uncertainty, people fall back on what they know. 
The regularities of experience and the lessons from authorities they trust and the rumors from those to whom they feel kindred. And throughout human history, this has served us well, as long as we shared those priors, even if those priors were wrong. Because if they were wrong, we could, as a group, update them with better or more useful or less harmful ones through face-to-face deliberation and argumentation and sharing of innovations, both technological and cultural. In the past, geography is what kept people apart. So major disagreements about reality in the form of religion and taboo and human rights and so on were usually the result of physical distance, natural boundaries generating cultural islands. But today, thanks to the internet and algorithms and self-selection and partisan media outlets, neighbors can live cordoned off on separate virtual landscapes, epistemic islands where they receive a continuous stream of virtual social feedback, regular but different experiences, messages, subjective interpretations, affirmations, confirmations, and reassurances that their assumptions are not assumptions, that their values and motivations and goals are noble and worthwhile, shaping them at the level of neurons into communities of differing priors. Most recently in the United States, We've seen this with the impeachment of Donald Trump, the trial of James Comey, opinions on climate change and evolution and the moon landing. And with the coronavirus, we are seeing all manner of different responses to the uncertainty of how we ought to be behaving and governing and planning for the future. But this goes back farther than that. In every election, every war, every crisis and moral panic, same evidence, same information, same situation, many different conclusions, and in the most extreme cases, different realities. It's just that social media and other technological innovations have accelerated and exacerbated this. But this is something that brains have done since there have been brains. But now, thanks to the Socks and Crocs experiment, we may now know how all this happens. We may understand it. And not just with explanation or prediction, We can create it at will, at a fundamental level. Pascal and Michael call all this surfpad. Substantial uncertainty, combined with ramified or forked priors or assumptions, yields disagreement. You could also resolve this uncertainty by like getting getting gathering more information. That's and that's true. But that's not practical in most situations because by the time you came up with an accurate model of the world, someone who just acts on their priors, maybe they might have already killed you or took you your stuff, or, or it might be too late, like in this corona crisis, we will know in a year what the right course of action was, but we have to take action now. So so, the, so these priors are shortcuts to, to act, because there's a huge action bias, if you want to call it a bias. I think it's actually prudent in the real world. Like you're not, in the real world, you're not the philosopher who can ponder everything forever. You have to make actions today, now, you know what I mean? And so there's a huge uh, discrepancy in, in, in that. The danger for me is not so much that we disagree, because we can argue our way out of that, is that we don't treat ambiguous situations as ambiguous. And so we don't treat disagreement as worthy of argument. The dress, the shoe, Yanny and Laurel, socks and Crocs, they all show that we can have an opinion about something that doesn't feel like an opinion. It feels like the raw, unfiltered, unassailable truth. On the internet, People can form tribes around that feeling. Flat Earth communities, QAnon, anti-vaxxers, neo-Nazis, 
liberals, conservatives, and so on. And once you are a member of a tribe, belonging goals will always motivate your reasoning more than accuracy goals will. This is because, as SurfPad shows, we are only consciously aware of the result of these processes, not the processes themselves. Your brain gives you the end result of this processing, and there's about, in the, in the primate brain, 30 processing stuff of visual perception. It doesn't give you, because you do, as far as I know, you, don't, you do not have conscious access to these 30 steps on the result. So that's where the uh, confusion comes in that, oh, people think they see the world just as it is because they get the end product. But a substantial portion of the primate cortex up to, it depends which species we're talking about, but up to, I would say, 30% in a human is just doing this subcortical, subconscious, not subcortical, subconscious processing. Some of it is subcortical, but most of it is not. But early individual cortex. And that's basically like a GPU. It's like you don't have, you don't have conscious, conscious access to that. That's why in a moment of uncertainty, looking at something that's ambiguous, it doesn't feel like you're uncertain. It doesn't feel like you're disambiguating. It doesn't feel like your opinion is an opinion. It feels like the raw, unfiltered, unassailable truth. And now, whatever your personal truth may be, you can find people who agree with you on the internet, even if you happen to be wrong, factually, morally, or otherwise. Disagreement over anything now takes on the appearance of what happened in 2015 when we disagreed over the dress. We don't see the people who disagree with us as disambiguating using differing priors. We just see them as wrong or maybe crazy or misinformed or misled. We think if they only knew what we knew, they would change their minds to match ours. But thanks to the work of Pascal and Michael and hundreds of other social scientists, you can see the folly in this idea by just replacing the dress with literally any piece of information that to you, seems to lead to a conclusion that should be obvious to everyone. Well, let me just take one step back to just emphasize how important this is. Um, in general, we construct reality together socially, if that makes sense. Like, it's co-constructed. So how do I know a table is there and not just me imagining it? Oh, you see it too, and you agree it's there. So social agreement is is incredibly important to calibrate yourself. The reason people rely on social feedback, you know, for everything is because it's usually a rich source of information, right? So if uh, if if we both see it, then it's there, then it's real. You know what I'm saying? Disagreement challenges that. We're like, oh, no, I don't disagree. I don't agree with you. So so that is a little bit awkward. You know, what I'm saying, let's say. Um, to link it to something for perception, let's say you think the car is very far away and I say, no, the car is right here. Well, now what? I mean, we can't both be right, right? We can we can both be wrong, but we can't both be right. So so, so we have to now adjudicate this somehow. Uh, where, I mean, usually if, if we trust each other, right? If I trust you that we are more or less on the same page and you have good intentions, then, well, then we probably say, oh, yeah, but, you know, do you see this tree over there? That suggests that you know, maybe I'm right and you're wrong and you just need to look more closely. Maybe you say, oh, yeah, you're right. I didn't think of that. So if we if we have goodwill, we can probably resolve this, right? By, by, by saying, oh, but why do you think it's closer? Oh, because there's a stone next to it and that makes it look bigger or something like that. But unfortunately, and this is where we are in the modern world now, honestly, I don't know 
who I can trust and who I can't trust. I don't really know anybody. Neither do you, if that makes sense. Like, you don't know most people to the level that you need to know, that you wouldn't know in a, in a trial environment. In a, in a trial environment, in a communal living with 100 people or so, you know everybody. I mean, you see this on social media every day, where people have this bad faith discussion and they argue and they are they're ending up further far away from each other than, than before, not not closer. And historically, that leads to violence uh, when, when, when groups disagree. So ultimately, the edu adjudication of that is basically violence, war. So we're like, well, we'll see who wins. Who wins is right. And that sort of thinking, obviously, extends to politics and to the kind of arguments that we have on the internet. We try to win more than we try to be correct. And that is all a factor of how we are not really in a post-truth world, but it's a post-trust world that's been brought about by moving into polarized, partisan, tribal politics and thinking and epistemology in every domain of our lives, which may or may not just be the result of new technological tools that encourage that. It's probably also why so much conspiratorial thinking is out there right now. So many conspiracy theories are bubbling up and moving into our actual politics. The politics that we usually take seriously are starting to take seriously conspiracy theories that we usually don't. Now, this all sounds like doom and gloom, this post-trust world, but Pascal says that the solution here, which is backed up by other research, backed up by interviews we've had on the show in the past, is that we must meet in ways that allow us to see with our eyeballs that the other person is using different priors and processes so that we can see what seems certain to us seems certain to others in a different way. In other words, we need to meet face to face so that we can see that different people live with different problems and goals and motivations and concerns. And most of all, they have had different experiences and continue to have them. And if we had experienced or continue to experience what they have or had, we might agree with them, even if we know for sure they're wrong, factually, morally, or otherwise. This is why we see contentious issues as contentious, because they are ambiguous and we are disambiguating them unconsciously and not by choice. And if we can see that, if we can see that in ourselves and others, it can lead to something he and many of the other academics at NYU are calling cognitive empathy. For Pascal, one avenue toward that empathy, towards seeing people as fellow disambiguators in an uncertain world, is something he calls surf padification. Uh, we need a surf padified discourse culture where everyone understands, or at least most people, many people understand, oh, this is what's going on. We need to transcend that. You know what I'm saying? Like, I am subject to a surf pad. You're subject to a surf pad. Knowing that, can we go to a meta level where like, oh, what are my priors? What are my assumptions? You know, do we have different priors? What are our goals? Uh, and maybe then come to some kind of understanding where the other person is coming from. Because I do see a lot of, quite frankly, shocking takes on social media. Uh, but instead of engaging with them, I don't say anything because I tried to engage and it made the disagreement worse. So I think we need like this culture of surf pad to like a, a new culture of discourse. And that is not as impossible as it might seem. Because new ideas in science have changed our norms, changed our institutions, changed our very conception of ourselves many times in the past. The Copernican revolution, evolution by natural selection, the germ theory of disease, 
moving the seat of consciousness into the brain, the advent of psychology itself making us aware of unconscious forces driving our thinking, feeling, and behaving. And maybe, in some future version of ourselves, and probably called something else, the surf patification of discourse in an always-on, always-connected, flattened world where all the information is always available all the time, making everything uncertain and everything ambiguous. We need something like that in a world where the truth exists, but trust is hard to come by. Here's something really nice to leave on. Pascal's next experiment will be trying to see if he can alter people's priors by giving them just a little bit of new experience. He wants to see if people can see the dress and the shoe and the Crocs differently. In other words, he's going to try and change people's minds by exposing them to new things. He hypothesizes it shouldn't take an entire lifetime of new experiences to gain a new perspective. Generally speaking, I would say a lifetime of experience is integrated to get the prior, but we don't know that. We don't know how long that is. So, so I'm actually doing an experiment right now where we give people different experiences of light and see if that shifts their perception of the dress or the Crocs. I bet you right now, which we haven't done yet, I bet you right now that if we could get the people who see this gray Another way of estimating the light instead of the uh, white uh, socks, but something else that makes it unambiguously clear what the light is. They would they would be able to see it as pink too. When Pascal told me that, I told him about how former cult members and members of hate groups and members of anti-scientific communities and so on almost always mention that they left after seeing something salient, something unambiguous, and that thing then allowed them to see everything else. In a new way, I I think I think the salient experience of your cult members or whoever you talk to, they they were experiences that made unambiguously made it clear what the light is. Oh, that's so right? good. <laughs> they they saw the light. They saw, they saw they, the light. Yeah, this is amazing. Enlightenment. Yes, we we could do a lot of this. So it needs to be something that's unambiguous, where you have no rationalization. Now, like, no, I now saw the light. It's it's done. You know, uh, it's always like that. The every person I've talked to who, who's left an organization, it, it almost it it's never been some sort of violation of their contract with that person. It's always been something that's more fundamental. Like, no, you can't take that medicine because that won't help your back, or you can't wear those clothes because. Uh, those are only allowed for certain kinds of people or one of them, them was um, they just wanted to date and they weren't allowed to date. It was, it was almost like what we were talking about earlier. Like it's these more fundamental motivations that aren't allowed. They're not allowing them to satisfy certain goals that are more fundamental than belonging to that group. And they start, that is the crack that allows in the light where they're like, Oh, um, 
why wouldn't you do that? That that it seems unreasonable to me, and that starts to see they start to see things differently after that. So to, to answer your previous question, so that's the strategy. Then you have to open a crack to let in light. That is it for this episode of the You're Not So Smart podcast. You can find links to everything that we talked about, including photos of the Crocs and the dress and the shoes and everything else over at youarenotsosmart.com. You can keep up with Pascal over at Pascal's Pinsies. That is P-E-N-S-E-E-S dot P-A-S-C-A-L-I-S-C-H dot net. That's Pinsies dot Pascalish dot net. And his Twitter account is P-A-S-C-A-L-L-I-S-C-H, at Pascal Lish. You can keep up with Michael Karlovich at mkarlovich.com, M-K-A-R-L-O-V-I-C-H.com. He also has a business that's at recursia.com, R-E-C-U-R-S-I-A dot design. You can keep up with me on Twitter at David McRaney. The podcast is at NotSmartBlog. And you can follow the show on Facebook at Facebook.com slash YouAreNotSoSmart. You can also support this one-person operation by heading to Patreon and pitching in at any amount. If you do that, you'll get the show ad-free. But at the higher amounts, you can get shirts and signed books and posters and all sorts of other cool stuff. All the previous episodes are on Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, and... YouAreNotSoSmart.com, and soon Spotify as well. And the opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. And all this interstitial music in this episode came from so many artists that it will all be listed at the website. Shortly, within the next two days or so, I will also finish an episode on the coronavirus and what social science has to say about that for you, for individuals living through this. Look for that at Patreon for free, but also here in the usual places at the usual times this comes out. Stay safe out there. Wash your hands. Be careful. I'll see you when it's all over. All right. Till then. I stood in front of this Crocs display for about an hour.